Welcome to Asia Abridged, where we highlight the best moments from Asia Society events. I'm Eric Fish. In this episode, we hear about human trafficking in Asia from Matt Friedman. For more than 25 years, Friedman has worked with governments and the UN on anti-trafficking programs and written numerous books on the subject. He's currently CEO of the Hong Kong-based Mekong Club, an NGO that aims to get slave labor out of the private sector. In these clips from a 2015 Asia Society event in Hong Kong, he describes the breadth of what he prefers to call modern-day slavery and what can be done about it. He starts by going through some of the most common human trafficking scenarios in the region. We want to warn you, it gets a bit graphic. Let's start with forced prostitution. Because most people, when they think about human trafficking, they think about people being forced into prostitution. And for good reason. There's 4.5 million women and girls who are forced into prostitution around the world. Now, my first exposure to this happened about uh, 20, 20 years ago when I was living and working in Nepal. And at that time, we were finding a lot of girls, the ages of 12, 13, 14 years old, who were HIV positive. We couldn't understand what was going on. How could you have HIV positive among girls in a traditional culture like that? So initially, we thought maybe the blood was tainted. So we went, we checked it out, and we then eventually went to the shelters and started to have discussions with the girls, and we heard what the story was. How they were tricked and deceived into going to the brothels in India. Now, the typical scenario was like this. A trafficker, a guy, 25 years old, handsome, would flash a bunch of money around in the village, and he'd say, I'm looking for a wife. I don't want a wife from the urban center. They're too difficult. I want a rural one. He'd go around until he found 14, 15-year-old girl. He would befriend her, and then he would actually ask for her uh, hand in marriage. And they would actually go through the process of getting married. After that, everybody's quite excited. Look at her. She has this husband. He's rich. He has money. He's going to take care of the family, going to take care of the community. But that's not really what's happening here. He says, okay, we're going to leave now. We're going to go to Kathmandu, but we'll be back in a couple of months. But instead of taking her to Kathmandu, he takes her to Mumbai, India. Now, she's never been more than 20 kilometers away from her house. So when she's in India, she thinks she's uh, still in Nepal. He takes her to the red light district. She's beginning to look around, doesn't really know what's going on. He says, honey, okay, stay in this room here. I'll be back in a few minutes. She said, no, 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 don't leave me. No, 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 just stay here. It's going to be okay. He then goes to the madam. He gets his 600 US dollars for selling her to the brothel. He gets the gold from the wedding and he hands over the wedding pictures. And then he goes to Nepal to do it again and again and again. So what happens next? The madam goes into the room and says, guess what? Your husband just sold you to me and you're going to be with 10 men a day because I tell you so. Her initial response is shock. No possible way. My husband wouldn't do that. Yes, that's what happened. When she comes to accept this, all of a sudden her world changes. I'll kill myself before I do that. I'm a good Hindu girl. I'm a married woman. If you hurt yourself, we're going to hurt your family. See this picture here, your wedding picture? Is this your mom? Is this your brother, your sister? You don't do what we say, they're going to get it. So she's forced into this situation where she has no place to go. To make her into a prostitute, they bring in professional rapists. 
four or five guys, they're usually on some kind of drugs, they'll come in and they will rape her over and over and over again until eventually she just breaks down, accepts whatever happens to her, and that's it. You said that this type of forced prostitution and sexual exploitation is what people most often associate with human trafficking. But 76% of trafficking victims are actually funneled into other forms of forced labor. Men and boys, too. Fishing boats in Thailand. You may have seen Guardian articles and various, uh, Bloomberg did an article on this as well, where a person from Cambodia hears that there's work in Thailand, crosses over into Thailand, looking around, looking around, can't find anything. Traffickers in the community see this, goes up to the guy and says, hey, brother, I'm from Cambodia. Looks like you need some help. Here, take a little bit of money. Now that you have my money, you got to stay with me. But guess what? I got this great job on a fishing boat. You're a guy. Men like fishing, right? We'll send you down there. You'll be out in the water for three months. You'll get a bunch of money. But what actually happens is once he gets on that fishing boat, he will languish there for four years. He's not going to get off that boat once. He will work from 6 in the morning until 12, 2, 4. When the fish are running, you're working. To get the person to, to work that hard, they give stimulants. So the person never really gets sleep, and they get injured. If you get injured, they're not going to go back to port. They just throw you right into the water. If you get sick or the captain doesn't like you, they throw you off the boat. They eat rice and fish every day, no fruits and vegetables. Four years of this. When the boat comes in after four years, guy says, can I have some money? They say, well, sorry, you know, you're from another country. You're poor, you don't have any power, just go away. I had one guy who was so upset that he didn't uh, get his money, went from captain to captain. One captain said, yeah, I'll give you some money. Went there, drank some coke that was laced with a drug, ended up on another boat for three years. Another pervasive source of demand for forced labor in the region is sweatshops. The scam associated with this is person from Burma hears that there's work in Thailand Here's that you can go to Sumit Sakan where there's 4,500 factories and get an easy job. Out of those factories, he goes to one of them, knocks on the door and says, can I have a job? The guy says, yeah, you can have a job. I'll pay you 50 US dollars a month to work here, but you can't leave the factory. He says, that's great. I've never made more than $25. This is a tremendous amount of money. Sign me up. Goes in the factory, works 14, 15, 16 hours a day. Terrible conditions. After two months, goes and asks for his money. The proprietor says, well, you know, I forgot to tell you one thing. It costs $54 a month for you to be here. I'm only paying you $50. You owe me money. You can't leave until you pay it back. It's a form of debt bondage. All of these people, before we raided and rescued them, were in this situation where they couldn't leave because every single day they worked, they got further and further and further into debt. Finally, he described how trafficking victims often end up in domestic servitude. Cambodia is an example. A family hears that if they invest $1,200, they can get their daughter to go to Malaysia and get a job as a domestic. So they go and they mortgage the farm, they get the money, everything seems okay until they get down to Malaysia. She goes, gets out of the airport, the minder from the uh, organization takes her passports and papers and says, here, sign this document. She looks at it, and it's in a language she doesn't understand. It's Malay. She says, I can't sign this. They said, well, you have to sign it. She says, I can't. If you don't sign it, we're going to send you back. Your family's going to lo lose everything. She signs the document. She then goes into the house. She works from 6 until 11, seven days a week, can't contact her family, can't go out. She's virtually a slave in there. But at least in the back of her mind, she knows that she's basically helping these, her family back in Cambodia. 
After three years, she goes home. She meets the family and they say, what happened? Nothing came. We didn't get anything. Because what the contract said was that food and board and everything else was going to be deducted from the 120. They were only going to pay her $10 a month and that didn't even bother being sent. They go to the agent, they complain. The agent says, what are you going to do about it? You're poor, you have no power, go away. Friedman said that these sorts of situations, where victims are lured on promises of economic opportunity or tricked into debt bondage, are how the vast majority of human trafficking cases happen, rather than people being kidnapped while kicking and screaming. For this reason, many trafficking victims don't even recognize themselves as such. And the most vulnerable victims aren't necessarily who you might think. I worked in Bangladesh for five years, and for the first three years, I thought everyone was vulnerable to slavery, and the poorest of the poor were the ones that were getting uh, sent away. But when we finally did a survey, we realized that it wasn't the poorest of the poor that were getting trafficked. They're too poor to do anything. They just stay where they are. It's the emerging middle class. In a community, you get a certain number of people that get a taste of prosperity, and all of a sudden they say, wow, we should try for more and more and more. They were the ones that were getting trafficked, and we only found trafficking in a certain number of locations. That was international. Friedman says that he doesn't prefer the term human trafficking because it basically only describes the process leading up to the exploitation and not the exploitation itself. So what do you call it then? You call it what it is, slavery. Because if a person doesn't get paid, if a person can't leave, if the person has physical and sexual violence and threats against self and family and debt bondage that holds them in place and they lose their documents, what else do you call it? It's slavery, pure and simple. Okay, and it's a word we all understand. I've said the term human trafficking a million times, it resonates no emotion. But when I say slavery, it does. When I say war, it does, or love, those words have a meaning. And you guys all understand that. So call it what it is. It isn't the same slavery of shackles and people being on chips, but it's the shackles are in their mind, and you'll understand that a little bit later. But can this really be true? Can we really have slaves? Come on. I hear this question all the time. 150 years ago, they had wars that were fought over this. You had Wilberforce and everybody else working on this. Slavery ended then. Well, not so. The number of slaves in the most recent uh, slavery index that just came out a couple of months ago is 35.8 million. If you stop and look at where the disproportionate number are, it's within Asia for two reasons. Well, there's a lot of people in Asia, obviously. The second is, in countries like India and Bangladesh and China, Vietnam and Thailand, there are feudal systems that have been in place for a long time that even after all this time have not been completely dismantled. They still exist. So exploitation is a generational thing. It exists within a lot of these locations. It hasn't been completely uh, taken away. Historically, out of Africa, over a 450-year period, 11.3 million slaves left to go to different parts of the world. That's over 450 years. Now in Asia alone, there's 23.5 million in place. That puts it into perspective. In fact, there are more slaves today than any other time in history. Friedman said that out of the 35.8 million slaves around the world, only about 48,000 are helped each year, a fraction of a percent. And only around 4,000 traffickers are prosecuted, Again, less than a percent of the total. He says part of the problem is that slavery generates an estimated $150 billion per year globally, while only around $350 million is spent fighting it. 
This is complicated by corruption and embarrassment within governments that inhibits them from taking aggressive action. But governments aren't the only ones bearing responsibility. The private sector needs to step up. Millions of slaves associated with supply chain, the private sector understands bad business. They know how to stop it, to go after it, to make it go away. They have the human and financial resources to do that. They know how to lead, too. Private sector, by its very definition, brings, breeds leadership. And we need that type of leadership to help us. And as a result of that, if we were to get them more involved, millions of people would be helped. Friedman noted that addressing the problem of slavery is complicated and necessitates a multi-pronged approach involving governments, NGOs, and businesses. But there's plenty that ordinary people can do, too. Use your comparative advantage. I sometimes get bankers who say, I made a whole bunch of money. I'm going to give it all up. I'm going to go and work in a shelter in Cambodia. My advice is don't do that. Stay in the banking world and figure out how the banks can help us. You go down to Cambodia, you don't speak the language, you don't understand the culture. Do the right thing. Use your comparative advantage wherever you are. Use the skills that you have. Volunteer your time to join the fight. Now, that sometimes means going and working at an NGO, but nowadays, I basically have people do volunteer work from their home because the internet allows me to have them do searches, to collect information, to package the information. And so volunteering becomes so much easier because you can do it according to your own schedule and means. Be a responsible consumer. Go online before you buy big items to see if the company that you're buying from has a policy about anti-slavery. If they do, congratulate them. If they don't, politely say, you should have one. I'm buying your goods, or I might not buy your goods, but I want to see something in there. Raise money and donate it for a worthy cause. To keep a girl in a shelter in Cambodia cost about three U.S. dollars a day. Sometimes the state can pay for two weeks, but she needs another two weeks. So the right amount of money, even if it's a small amount, to the right organization can really make a difference. Thanks for listening to Asia Abridged. If you want to hear more, you can visit our show page at asiasociety.org slash podcast, where you can also find the link to the full video of this event. You can also subscribe on iTunes or follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Asia Society. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.